I don't claim at all that pathologists are those who should perform the testing in the lab because it's so specialized discipline nowadays that you need very focused people from molecular biology field. But I think that pathologists should be the one who delivers the comprehensive report where everything, it means gross morphology, microscopy, immunohistochemistry, and molecular test results are integrated into one final message to the clinician. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. In this era of molecular testing, we should still note the importance of histologic morphology and the central role that the pathologist should have in interpreting these tests. Dr. Alex Rischka is currently the president of the European Society of Pathology, and he's my guest today. We're going to talk about the state of molecular pathology throughout Europe, We'll learn about the concept of the multidisciplinary molecular tumor board, and we'll get a little behind-the-scenes look at the ESP. All right, here's Dr. Alish Rishka. Tell me a little bit about your early life and, you know, what inspired you to become a doctor? This is an extremely challenging question. In fact, uh, my family uh, has no medical background at all, and... I uh, decided to become a doctor relatively lately when I was graduating the secondary school. And to be honest, I never had like a dream to be a doctor from my childhood. And simply, I was interested in mathematics, physics, chemistry, natural sciences, biology. And so I was considering what would be the best career for my my life. and, And I thought that doctor is something which is meaningful, helpful. It would be definitely interesting for me. So so I'm not the type of person who tells you that since the childhood, I wanted to save the people and, and cure cancer or something like that. It was quite pragmatic decision, in fact, and um, not based on, on dreams, but on, let's say, more rational decision. Okay, that makes sense. You know, I've been finding more and more that because I always thought that people had that sort of dream since they were really young or whatever, I'm going to become a doctor and like save the world or cure cancer or something like that. But most people that I talk to, they really don't. They have a story like yours. Like it it just kind of comes to them later. I'm an an outsider. So I'm happy to hear that. But I I get I got fantastic teachers at my secondary school, uh, namely for chemistry and for biology. And uh, I think I learned really a lot about human genetics, about uh, biochemistry. And I was extremely interested in the, the processes of the human life, of, of, the, of the biology development of organs and so on. So from this point of view, I was really more like into biological, let's say, uh, aspect of, of medicine than for the taking care of the patients, Uh, although, of course, uh, I knew what medicine means, but I was more interested into the processes and into understanding the disease than than really taking care of the patients. I don't want to to sound like uh, very superficially, but (laughs) simply I was very much interested into biological processes, in fact. That makes a lot of sense, especially uh, kind of where your career went, and we're going to talk about that a a little bit later. But 
All right. So then let's talk about going into medical school. What was that experience like for you? Like, did you ever feel like you had made the wrong decision or did you, did you know right away that this was the right place for you? I enjoyed uh, medical studies from the day one. I have to say it, it was for me, it, it was really like dream, which I never had before. So the dream becoming true. You know, first year, this is anatomy, histology, uh, biology, and uh, uh, we worked really extremely hard. Uh, I know that I was quite hardworking already during my secondary school, but coming to the medical school, this was like hitting the wall. Suddenly, we had to study so much and uh, you had no time for for your, let's say, private life for your hobbies and so on but still i enjoyed it a lot and uh, i was very lucky that i had a couple of people around me my my, uh, my my schoolmates who had the same passion for studying so it was not that challenging and that difficult and um, i enjoyed the whole medical studies i would say i had some weak moments, I would say, in my fifth year, where it was really probably the toughest year um, of the studies, because it was like altogether uh, surgery, internal medicine, um, uh, and pediatrics at once. And it was so much that I thought, if I shouldn't do something else, because I was really feeling overwhelmed by by all the uh, requirements and uh, and preparations for the exams and so on. But it lasted like until I finished the first of these three large exams. And after that, I was again, very happy. So so basically I had no, uh, let's say doubts, uh, if this is really the career I, I should uh, focus on. And I enjoyed it a lot. Okay. That's, I like that story. Um, what kind of medical specialties were, did you find interesting from the from the you know kind of early uh, on? I don't know how is it in other countries, but uh, in Czechoslovakia at that time or Czech Republic today, I think most of the boys who come to medical school they uh, they want to be surgeons. This is like. Uh, uh, our, oh, sure. If I ask uh, our medical students when I'm examining them in third year, m- many of them really are willing to become surgeons. And, and I was the same. So my dream was to become a surgeon after m- maybe this is because I'm really more like uh, visual type uh, than uh, abstract type. Uh, so so I enjoyed more anatomy and histology than physiology. And um, I don't know. Uh, pathophysiology for example so from this point of view i i really liked surgical practice because you do something with your hands you see what you are doing if you compare it to psychiatry where you are like trying to understand but you have no proof that you are right in fact so with surgery it's it's much better or imaging methods this is another fantastic field so i wanted to be a surgeon and already in in uh, my third year uh, i started coming to surgical department for the night shifts and for the afternoons, uh, like volunteering. And uh, I tried to participate at some operations and, and some work at the outpatients department. And I liked it a lot. But during the years, I, this was f- for two years. And, and during this time, I realized that I'm not very practical regarding my hands. Uh, and also, 
I have um, a kind of uh, um, uh, of optical impairment or how to call that. I don't see fully in 3D, uh, which is not limiting myself because I have strabism. And uh, it's not limiting myself in any, let's say, practical aspects of my life because it's very mild. But still, I don't see fully in 3D. And for surgery where you are really like looking into the hole and, and trying to do something, you need perfect vision. And this is something what limited me a lot. And I realized that I wouldn't be the, the, the great surgeon. I would be, let's say, mediocre surgeon. And uh, this was not something I, I dreamed of uh, to, to be a mediocre doctor. So I thought that maybe surgery is not the, the best choice for me, although I very much like the contact with the patients and, and all the fuss which is ongoing uh, in, um, in the department. So, so this was a quite difficult decision, and I doubted if I should not try it, but um, I think I made the, the good decision because I most probably wouldn't be the, the, the great surgeon, I would say. So then how did pathology come into the picture? <laughs> this is this is very funny. This was complete chance or complete um, coincidence, I would call it. I was uh, representing the students in the academic senate of the faculty. One day, uh, the, the senate asked uh, myself and the, the friend of mine that we should recruit uh, some of the doctors uh, to participate in the committee, where, which was um, evaluating uh, the applications for for students' dormitories because at that time it was very difficult to get the the, the place in the students' students' dormitory, and there was a kind of waiting list, and uh, we needed some independent committee to evaluate that who should get it and who should be uh, rejected, and so we thought whom should we uh, recruit, and uh, we said well we have very good nice teacher at pathology department. So let's go to him and ask him to, to help us with this. So we came to pathology department and asked him if he would be, if he would be available for, for this duty. And he said, okay, no problem, guys. And then he said, well, I know you from, from the classes and I know that you are morphologically oriented. Wouldn't you considering volunteering at pathology department, coming here here and there and, and looking at some slides and so on. And I would show you how to cyto how the cytology is done. It's extremely exciting, blah, blah, blah. And so suddenly I started volunteering at pathology department. And he was really extremely enthusiastic. And he was uh, uh, like spending a lot of time with me, mentoring me, showing me what pathology is about, that it's not just the autopsies, that it's much more. And it's a really a service for the patients. So I decided that I should consider this as possible career. And I stayed at the department. And when I was in the last year, I was already offered the position by my boss, previous boss. And I started pathology. Okay, two things about that. Pathologists, in, in my experience, are just like you described, like like the uh, I guess that's a that's a mentor there for you. They they are like that. They're excited about the work that they do, and they're very willing to show other people about that that work. That is my experience, and I think that's a misconception for a lot of people that 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 pathologists aren't like that. That's that's not what I have seen. And also, it sounds like you didn't really know much about what pathology was 
before you got into the department, which is, I think, also very common these days still. Yeah, well, so so point one, I, I fully agree with you. Uh, I think that pathologists yeah. are not the quirky types of persons uh, who are uh, like portrayed right. in the movies or, or in the TV shows or yeah. something mm-hmm. like that. I think that pathologists are very social people and uh, very much willing to explain everybody what they are doing and how is it helpful uh, to the patients. Uh, And second, yeah, well, uh, the problem is that when you are studying like undergraduate student pathology, this is something completely different from the real world pathology, which is performed by surgical pathologists, because the undergraduate students must be instructed how to understand the disease, how to classify diseases, how to correlate, let's say, the biological processes with disorders in the real patients and with their symptoms. However, the real pathology practice is just slightly aside of that. Simply, we are doing, of course, we understand the disease, but this is just the very basis. And we have to understand much more to to be able to, to make the diagnoses. So for medical students, um, even today, pathology is one of the most difficult subjects because it's a lot of information. And although it's not difficult per se, it's, it's not that difficult to understand that, but it's enormous amount of knowledge. And there is, of course, no time to show them on top of this basis also some, uh, let's say, details from the clinical practice. We try that, despite what I said, we try that during our lectures to just show them what are the implications for real world medical practice. So let's say when we are teaching them about some type of of cancer, we sometimes show them some case reports of the patients uh, where the pathology played a crucial role in identification of the process in, let's say, differential diagnosis, decision about the treatment and so on. But still, most of the time we have to spend in explaining uh, um, how the necrosis develops, how what are the genetic backgrounds of the cancer and so on. So it's, it's not the pathology we are practicing later. Okay, I see. And you're using those methods because you're a professor of pathology and actually chair of the pathology department. And you're using methods like that to sort of uh, interest medical students in pathology, Mm -hmm. the kind of things you just said? Yeah, well, uh, during the first lecture each year, I'm telling the students that we will try to, to teach them pathology, not because they will be pathologist, only the best ones will be the pathologist. This is my, my um, favorite joke. Uh, uh, the other ones will, okay. be, will, will be surgeons and internists and so on. But uh, uh, to be honest, uh, we really don't teach students pathology for pathology. We teach them pathology to understand disease for the clinical implementation. It means they will need pathology to be good physicians, to be good surgeons, gynecologists, whatever. And it's very difficult, in fact, because uh, uh, the mind of medical students, in my experience, is set uh, in a very, I would say, very simple way. I'm uh, now studying physics. I have to pass the exam of physics, and then it's over. I'm studying chemistry to pass the, the the exam in chemistry, and then it's over. And we have to tell them that when they they are not studying pathology to pass the pathology exam, because they will build on what they hear from us. 
during the years when studying internal medicine, uh, infective diseases, um, whatever. So we have to really uh, somehow attract them so that they will be able to keep the knowledge from pathology for their whole life, not just for the subject, because of course they forget a lot. But that's why, for example, we don't show, or we, we do show, but, but we don't insist that they will really recognize in microscope one type of cancer from another one. This is, I think, something uh, what is not so important because they will probably never look into the microscope again, or majority of them. But they, we use histology and, and all this kind of stuff for illustration of the disease and its impact on the patient. Where did your interest in teaching come from? Well, uh, well, I, I'm extrovert, uh, so I have no problem uh, with uh, speaking and, and talking to people. But... I don't know exactly. Uh, I from the day one, I was a teacher. I was appointed both as the um, as the uh, the resident in pathology and uh, assistant professor for uh, medical school. So I'm like employed by two employers, medical faculty and university hospital. And from day one, I was always teaching, and I enjoyed it a lot. I think it's very inspiring if you talk to young people and if you um, have to explain and uh, even, uh, uh, let's say, uh, defend what you say. So it's not just I tell you this is black and this is white because I say so, but you really have to argue use some arguments to explain why you believe that. And this is, I think, very much uh, inspiring for critical thinking. So you never accept anything just because somebody said that. You always decide either I do understand it and have some biologic background for that, and that's why I believe that this is so, or if it doesn't sound too, uh, let's say, understandable or believable, so then I have to really dwell into the problem and try to to get it to understand it and uh, i think this is very good if uh, there are some new theories some new uh, hypotheses so so the more critical you are the the higher is the chance that you will not get fooled of course nobody's perfect so so sometimes we practice something do something and only after some time we realize that we were wrong and in fact the new data show something different than, than what we believed before. But that, that's life, I think. And this is the science, how it works. Simply, you have the hypothesis, you either prove it or, or you reject that. And this is something what uh, where, where teaching lot helps a lot. So um, uh, you all the time are questioned by the students and you all the time have to uh, have to defend what you say. Okay. Are you seeing less medical students go into pathology residency? Because like here in the US and probably a lot of other countries also, it, it seems to be the case. There are less less pathologists coming out mm -hmm. of medical school. Is that is that the case there in the Czech Republic also? It's very difficult question. I, I wouldn't say that we have less interest. Uh, the students are basically interested in pathology. However, what I see is 
general lower interest in medicine. And this is something which was for a long time not understandable for me, why the people are not so much interested in practicing medicine. Because at when I was graduating the secondary school, medicine was like first class department. And this was something where really the best of the best could think about. But today, I think that the spectrum of fields of uh, um, of jobs which is opening to young people is so broad with all this ai uh, computers uh, natural sciences genetics molecular genetics so somebody who is really interested in biological/natural sciences now they have so broad spectrum of jobs or or disciplines to orient on that medicine is just one of them and also in the past medicine was at least in our region more respected so if if somebody was a doctor this was somebody really like very respected person today doctors are jobs like any others so i think also this aspect of of our profession has slightly diminished its importance and therefore simply young people and we sit, see it on the profile of the people who are coming to the medical schools to university is different than what we had in the in the past but still among the medical students uh, there is like gaussian distribution always like there are excellent ones and and there are the poor ones and something in between of course and we try to recruit for pathology the best ones of course every discipline does but uh, i guess uh, at least this is my experience from last 20 years we are quite successful in really recruiting those who are the best students of the year and so on and so i cannot say that there is decreased interest uh, maybe we could have even higher interest if we would be more able to show the medical students what that pathology is so modern today that this is really um, cutting edge technology that we have now molecular genetics ai digital pathology and all this kind of stuff so i think that it would be even more interesting for them so we for example try to not just teach them let's say the regular course of pathology but in the higher years like like last but one year we have also different uh, multidisciplinary subjects where pathologists are participating and already showing the role of pathologists in the whole, uh, let's say, diagnostic treatment process. And it helps a lot. And also we try to recruit the best uh, students who are passing the exams. We, we still keep the oral exams, in fact. And during these oral exams, when I see somebody who is really very good, who has apparently logical thinking who is very good in defending why he is saying what he's saying or she of course I, I don't want to be gender unbalanced so then we ask these or offer these people if they would be willing to volunteer at our department and during uh, their later years of the medical studies they come to our department and do some some let's say minor scientific project here just on voluntary basis so that we can 
look at them and see how good they are, how focused they are, how disciplined they, uh, disciplined they are. And they can also see at our side what is pathology about, what we are doing, what is the team here, if they like the atmosphere and so on. And we are able to recruit virtually every year at least one resident from this category of people. And these are the people who usually stay here with us and become the staff members. I also volunteered this way. And I think it was a very good experience for me. And I would say 90% of our uh, of our uh, current staff are those who were recruited already as student volunteers uh, like me. And so let's talk about the multi multidisciplinary tumor boards and molecular pathology and kind of let's get into the, sort of the role of the pathologist in all mm -hmm. of that. Uh, I believe that unlike 20, 30 years ago, where you could be uh, a magnificent oncologist who knew virtually everything about the most common types of cancer, about the treatment and so on. This is not possible anymore because simply if you want to be a, a first class oncologist, you have to focus on one diagnosis, sometimes even one sub-diagnosis, like not just breast cancer. Some people are just focused on triple negative breast cancer or, I don't know, non-porcelain cancer um, and so on. And uh, even so, the development in both oncology and in pathology slash genetics, molecular genetics and so on, is so fast that uh, it's virtually impossible to keep pace with everything. And sooner or later, you realize that you need a partner who describes you or explains you sometimes some gray zones or some uh, equivocal messages which can you read in the report. And I think that this is experience from most of the comprehensive cancer centers, that the best way how to do that is that we divide the burden and each of us will focus on what is ours. So we meet with surgeons, oncologists, radiodiagnosticians, uh, and we together discuss individual cases. And uh, there is a tumor board for lung cancer. There is a gastrointestinal tumor board. There is hematological tumor board. And pathologist always is very much appreciated, not only to explain if there is something between the lines in the histological report, even this sometimes happens, but also in these new methods in, in biomarker testing. If you have the message which is one page long from NGS, or if you have multiple markers tested, and sometimes the results are, let's say, contradictory. So let's say you have a patient who has at the same time EGFR mutation in lung cancer and has high PDL1 expression. So then, of course, the question is, should the patient will be, be candidate for targeted treatment or for immunotherapy? And this is something where really pathologists can help because they have their own expertise in pathology, in diagnosis. And oncologists can just focus on on their job, it means on the result of the studies, of, of the trials, and what are the messages of different trials and so on. So uh, everybody who participates in these multidisciplinary boards uh, is very happy uh, that uh, we find 
common language and the final benefit goes to the patient. Even the higher level of that are the molecular tumor boards. Uh, these are not for all patients, of course. Not even the, the multidisciplinary tumor boards are for all patients. There are some patients who are where the diagnosis is so clear and the, the clinical conditions are so clear that there is no discussion so much about what treatment should be should be chosen. But sometimes it's needed. But with molecular tumor boards, these are for selected patients where really the information from molecular testing is so complex that even the pathologist is not sometimes able to completely give the message. So we have also our molecular biologists part participating in these molecular tumor boards to explain some details about meaning of certain mutations and so on. So these are namely patients with some rare genomic alterations or with some very let's say, fuzzy contradictory data from the NGS, where uh, really we need to find out what would be the best solution for the patient. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Alex Shrishka. We'll be right back. In December, LabVine is hosting the Laboratory Management in Practice virtual event. This is a five-day event that runs from December 5th through December 9th. This program provides the learner with knowledge and understanding of the fundamental management skills, behavior, and attitudes required to manage and lead laboratory teams toward achieving goals. You can use the link in the show notes to head over to LabVine to learn more and sign up today. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need, comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, so I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program, where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. And now back to Dr. Alish Rishka on the People of Pathology podcast. I think you've 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 written that it, when it comes to all these molecular tests, and there's always new new ones coming out that the results of these should still be interpreted by the pathologist. Uh, can, can you can you speak to that point? I hundred percent agree uh, uh, because uh, I think tissue based testing should be stay in the hands of pathologists for one one simple simple reason pathologists need to first look at the tissue and understand all potential factors which might influence the result of the test also may help in selection which test is most appropriate so just an example if you have uh, a tumor sample which contains only few tumor cells and a lot of inflammatory background. Uh, this is something what pathologists must say and must evaluate because if this wouldn't be done, so the, uh, the, the lab would receive just the tissue block saying this is, I don't know, colonic cancer. And they would say, okay, this is large chunk of tissue so we can use Sanger sequencing we, uh, because we don't need anything special. But with uh, low relative content of tumor cells or neoplastic cells, the test may become falsely negative. 
because simply the uh, the signal from the tumor cells is hidden in the background noise of the inflammatory background. And so this is something where if pathologist does not look at the at the sample or if he does not tell the the, the molecular biologist guys uh, here we have negative result but maybe this is because the tissue was not optimally uh, handled during the preanalytical phase and the the DNA can be damaged so it could be also falsely negative result and so on and so forth so uh, i think that I don't claim at all that pathologists are those who should perform the testing in the lab because it's so specialized discipline nowadays that you need very focused people from molecular biology field. But I think that pathologists should be the one who delivers the comprehensive report where everything, it means gross morphology, microscopy, immunohistochemistry and molecular test results are integrated into one final message to the clinician. And I think that it cannot be done by anybody else than pathologist. So it sounds like, you know, because some people think that with these molecular tests and other tests that it's going to replace morphology. But it sounds like your way of thinking is that's that isn't the case and won't be the case. I, I, I bet my medical head that this will not happen. Because morphology is something what must be always at the beginning. Already, if you just think about, I don't know, non-small cell lung cancer, at the beginning, you must decide whether this is squamous cell carcinoma, adenocarcinoma, or anything else. And based on this, you choose which test should be performed. Without the morphological knowledge, you would it doesn't make any sense to test, for example, squamous cell carcinoma for EGFR mutations because they are not there. It doesn't make any sense to uh, to test FGFR mutation in squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus because it's not there. It's in the adenocarcinomas. So uh, from this point of view, morphology is at the beginning. And as I said, also at the end, because then you have to correlate the result of the test with the final report. If you see that there is, I don't know, uh, just 10% of neoplastic cells, and you have some something like 50% uh, of frequency of genomic alteration, it means it might be even uh, germline mutation. Because simply, if it's more than what you have, uh, the neoplastic uh, fraction, then it doesn't make sense. So I think that the, the message from pathologists is absolutely crucial. And uh, morphology, it's not about not about molecular testing only. We have to keep in mind that that morphology tells you for very low cost enormous amount of information and despite today all these fancy words like agnostic therapy and and basket trials and so on i think that still most of the patients i would say 95% of patients are treated based on result of histology it means typing grading staging and this is something and also evaluation of the surgical margins for example this is something which brings so much information for so little money that it cannot be compared to any molecular test okay i like that that's a good message and definitely for you know for someone like me i'm at being a pathologist assistant i mean doing doing the grossing work which it sounds like is still going to be important i mean that's my entire job 
So that's that, that's comforting to me. I, I want to go back to because it seems like you've always been involved in pathology societies, professional societies, both in in your own country and also just throughout Europe. And in fact, currently you're president of the European Society of Pathologists, which I want to get into. But why was it? Uh, why has it been important to you to get involved in these societies? Well. Uh... I, I was never dreaming about uh, playing any role in the societies. I, I took it like my, let's say, professional duty to to be member of the scientific organization, which should be defending the discipline per se. And uh, based on this, uh, I became the member of the Czech Society of Pathology and also of the um, Czech Division of the International Academy of Pathology. And uh, I was just a regular member. And later on, by coincidence of, of, of uh, several factors, I was elected of the, uh, the, the president of the Czech Society of Pathology. And I served in that position for two periods. It means eight years. And I think this was more than enough for me. And uh, I was very happy to give up and, uh, and, and uh, hand it over to, to our current president. With the ESP, it's even, uh, I would say, more complicated or, or more more maybe ridiculous. I was not member of the European Society of Pathology until 2009, I guess. I participated at the congresses, but I never was uh, was a member. Uh, but in 2009, we had the discussion within the Czech Society of Pathologists that we would like to apply for organization of the European Congress of Pathology in Prague. Uh, there is a process you apply uh, for for organization of the Congress and you have, of course, you have to present your bid and there are some, uh, some competing cities and, and you have to explain everybody why you are the best and so on. So I thought, okay, let's give it a shot. And I I uh, talked to um, uh, to the president of the ESP at that time, who was Professor Mike Wells from uh, from UK, and there was also the president elect, who was Professor Fatima Carneiro, who you whom you uh, already interviewed some some weeks ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, by very ridiculous coincidence. We were successful. The, the, the coincidence was that originally for 2012, there was supposed to be, to be the ECP in London. But because there was um, Olympic Games before that, and there was Paralympics Games organized in London in 2012, so London was not able to also host um, uh, ECP. I don't know why, but simply this was uh, this was the fact. And suddenly there was a vacant position for 2012, and I asked for that in 2009, which was a very short period. Be- believe me, two and a half years for uh, organization of, of the Congress, it's very short time. And they were happy that they have a volunteer who would do that. And so uh, they asked, okay, Czech society, we will be very happy if you you are applying, you will get the, the 2012 position or slot. And so we jumped right into the cold water uh, with that. And I thought, okay, uh, I cannot be 
chair of the local organizing committee of the European Congress of Pathology and not being the member of the European Society of Pathology. This is embarrassing. So I became the member and I was involved from the day one very much with the ESP leadership and headquarters because of organization of the Congress. So I somehow uh, found that these people, you know, all them from the textbooks and from the high level articles. And you always, if you are young, you think about them like these are the gods and these are the the, main, the, the, the masters of, of the discipline. But they are absolutely normal people, very nice, very kind, uh, very supportive. And I found many friends among them. And, and somehow... I simply uh, became uh, more active in the ESP. I was elected to the council of the society. And later on, I was proposed to to uh, become the president uh, or, or to, to apply for the presidency. So it sounds like because, uh, I mean, you mentioned Dr. Carnero and, and a few of the others that I've, that I've spoken with, like getting into sort of the executive council or whatever it's called with the, with the ESP. Like it, it's not, it doesn't seem like it's something that you uh, aim for yourself. Like somebody else kind of pushes you in that direction or, or sort of nominates you for that. The council, which is like the, the, the highest body of the, uh, of the uh, society mm -hmm. uh, is composed of pathologists from different countries. And when you are selecting the candidates, uh, being uh, the, the executive committee, you always have to like suggest some candidates to the General Assembly and they have to approve them. And with when you are selecting the candidates, you must take into consideration many different aspects. So it's it's not it should not be all breast pathologists or GIT pathologists. It should be like discipline uh, wide. Second, you must have gender balance. Third, you have you have to have country balance. So you cannot have just Germans or just, just British. You need to have from different countries. And so probably I was like the right person at the right moment. So I was from the Central Europe. I was a uh, breast pathologist slash thyroid pathologist. And uh, uh, I don't know, um, probably they were happy um, uh, with my um, activity during the Prague Congress. So this were, these were probably the factors why I was asked if I would agree to be nominated. And of course, it was an enormous honor for me. So so I agreed with that. So this year, the European Congress of Pathology was was held in Switzerland, yeah. in, in Basel. Mm -hmm. Now, what as, as the president, what is your role during a, that, that meeting like mm -hmm. that? Well, the, the ch time changed enormously. When we organized the Congress in Prague, I was very much involved as the local... Uh, local organizing committee chair in also preparation of the program in correspondence with the speakers, with the chairs and so on. Today, and I would say like in last eight years or so, 90% uh, of the whole program is prepared by uh, ESP working groups. We have like pulmonary working group, endocrine working group, pul uh, I don't know, hematopathology and so on. So the working groups are the muscles of the society, and they are really responsible for delivering the program proposal and nomination of the speakers. And then the scientific committee, which is composed of representatives of, of the locals, uh, of the ESP leadership and so on, 
then this the scientific uh, committee decides and and confirms mostly what what has been proposed just preventing overlaps and so on so the role of the president is more like harmonizing not that much in direct organization still of course you have some like honor, honorary uh, responsibilities opening closing and uh, Uh, chairing some special sessions, uh, keynote lecture, and and so on. Uh, But the burden of the, let's say, scientific content has moved a lot from the the president and uh, and the executive committee to uh, working groups. On the other hand, uh, president has a lot of, let's say, background responsibilities, which are not that much visible, but Uh, We have discussion with our industry partners, with our partner scientific societies. And uh, this all happens usually during the Congress because simply everybody's there. So to be honest, uh, I could not that much enjoy the scientific content of the Basel Congress because I was almost all the time sitting at different meetings or chairing my sessions or or delivering my, my lecture and so on. So being a president from this point of view is a nightmare because you really you are not coming to the congress just to enjoy it and to learn something you are there really to work from 7 till 7 every day and um you have barely time to 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 have a lunch so uh i'm very much looking forward to next congress which will be in dublin next year but i'm even more looking forward yeah. to the next congress where i won't be a president anymore and i will be again uh, able to sit at the sessions of my choice and just enjoy being uh, in the audience a- and listening to the speakers mm-hmm. i can understand that you know I, I read that this year that the congress for the first time was a, a hybrid meeting yeah this is this was very new for us and we were absolutely unsure how will it turn out because in the past we had only on-site congresses of only this was like any other society last two years we had online congress only which was again like any other society and this year we were facing the the decision whether we should go on-site only again or whether we should try hybrid and the main consideration was that we were unsure if we will make it hybrid, how many people who would potentially come to to Basel uh, for, for on-site meeting will decide rather stay at home and uh, watch it from at home online. Because it has many implications how uh, large the rooms should be. You, you can imagine what, what, what does it bring. So when we decided, so, so one of the points where the decision was, uh, let's say, facilitated was the Russian aggression, the, the, the war in Ukraine. Because after the war in Ukraine started, we realized that many people are not able to travel. Some There were many people were afraid of traveling because there was like kind of uncertainty and so on. And so we said, okay, we have to go. Uh, we have to go hybrid, and we we will see what what does it bring, and and simply we will learn. And to be honest, this congress was the largest congress whatsoever for for ESP. So it was the biggest ECP in the history, but it also showed that most of the people 
I would say 80% participated on-site. And uh, we announced this hybrid form relatively lately. So we had a lot of on-site registered participants already. And we were interested how many of them will switch from on-site to online. And there were only a couple of dozens of them. And most of them stayed on-site, like they didn't switch the registration from on-site to online. So a majority of participants were on-site. It was absolutely fabulous. And uh, everybody was craving the human contact, I would say. So you you never saw so busy and buzzing uh, um, uh, lounges uh, in uh, in front of the of the lecture halls during the coffee breaks there were so many people nobody was leaving to to go to to enjoy the city or to to do some sightseeing everybody was on site it was unbelievable i was so happy to see that and in addition to that it brings another benefit and this is the fact that when you are, you know that very well, when you are participating at the Congress with parallel sessions, it's always the Sophie's choice. Which session should I go to and which should I skip if they are in parallel? With hybrid form, it, it's not the case anymore because simply you choose one, you go to this one and you can still watch the other one online later after the Congress is over. So this is something what many participants really appreciated and, and told us that this is something for them absolutely crucial. So from now on, we are pretty sure that the hybrid form is the way to go, that although it, of course, increases the cost of the organization, it brings so many benefits that it definitely is, um, is, is beneficial for, for, uh, for both the ESP and the, uh, and the participants. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. You know, and it's, it's true. Like with almost two years of having no in-person meetings and to finally have them again. Yeah. The couple that I've been to in the last year, it's very, you're right. People want that, that human contact again. And it's interesting how much we all kind of miss that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I, I want to kind of wrap up with going back to molecular pathology again, because I know this is a big interest for you. And I'm curious about as, as far as like throughout Europe, what is sort of the state of the kind of the um, the use of molecular pathology? And is there a need throughout the continent to have uniformity in molecular testing? Uh, this is a very good and extremely important question, in fact, because Okay. Unlike the United States, where the country is more or less homogeneous, I know that there are differences, but you have one healthcare system throughout the whole U.S. In Europe, each country has different healthcare system, different types of reimbursement, which therapies are reimbursed, which are not, which tests are reimbursed, which are not. And so we are like chasing many targets at once because simply what works in one country is absolutely no go in another country, either because of financial reasons or because of lack of pathologies, lack of labs, lack of uh, equipment and so on. So, of course, we try because we are most of the European countries are in the European Union. So we try to somehow unify the, the level of healthcare benefits which are provided to European patients. But it's definitely not equal in all countries. And we try to somehow harmonize the approach to testing 
from country to country and to learn from the best practice examples in one country, which is more advanced, to bring it or to transform it into an, another country where, which is, let's say, less economically privileged, which has some some um, obstacles. Uh, can they be uh, bypassed or or not? So uh, we, uh, as ESP, uh, try to, let's say, for example, write some position papers which are demonstrating what is the role of pathology, what is the current best practice, and so on. But it cannot be like a guideline because simply it doesn't have any binding, uh, legally binding uh, co- uh, impact or, or, or consequence. The, the molecular testing is only needed because the clinicians need the results for decision about the treatment. It means if the treatment in the country for certain, let's say, drug is not uh, available, it doesn't make any sense to test for the marker, which is the indicator for this drug, because simply it would be just wasting of the money because the patient cannot get the drug anyway. So uh, we must, let's say, uh, reflect the needs of the oncologist in each individual country. And based on that, we must implement the best and uh, least economically challenging way how to perform as many tests as possible and to provide as much information uh, as possible to our clinical colleagues. Okay. I like it. That's, that, that's a, that's a good, uh, good message. And I think that's, that's a good place to end. This has been a really interesting conversation. I appreciate uh, learning more about you and I appreciate your time uh, here today. So uh, Dr. Alish Rishka, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. A great big thanks to Dr. Alish Rishka. I've got a trailer for you right now from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. This work then that you're doing, and uh, is this how you got involved in with the, the Cancer Genome Atlas uveal melanoma study? Yes. Um, so the TCGA, I mean, I, th- I think it was, it's amazing what was undertaken and the amount of investment that went into the TCGA. And the, uh, indeed, actually, you know, the amount of data that was generated and is still being generated because there's still a lot of data markets going on. You probably know that there were 33 cancer types which were examined in the TCGA, and the 33rd tumor was uveal melanoma. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yes, we were uh, very lucky to be intruded, and it just came about because they still had some money left over. <laughs> and. Um, I don't quite know, well, I don't quite understand how it happened, but I think the American collaborators knew of people running the project and they they asked whether it would be possible and uh, they approached European partners who they've been working with, including ourselves. And um, so there were uh, partners from France, the Netherlands, just trying to remember where else obviously the UK, but um, I think there's, there was another country from Europe involved. You can hear more from Dr. Sarah Copeland, including her work with the Cancer Genome Atlas in episode 74. Okay, so another really interesting episode. I enjoyed the kind of behind the scenes look at what goes into putting on the European Congress of Pathology. 
And hey, the Congress next year is in Dublin, Ireland. That's always been a bucket list destination for me, so that might be fun. Also, it's interesting to hear about the state of molecular pathology throughout Europe and how the ESP tries to work with the different healthcare systems in all of those countries to try to standardize things. But I think the most important part of this conversation was what Dr. Rishka said about the central role that the pathologist should have in interpreting molecular testing and combining that with morphology to arrive at the best diagnosis and ultimately the best treatment for the patient. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path, or you can just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.